the attitude of American Protestants towards the Vatican has changed immeasurably during my lifetime. One example, when Harry Truman tried to appoint Mark Clark as an ambassador to the Vatican, it was the second most unpopular action of his administration. Second only to the firing of General Douglas MacArthur. He received a mountain of letters and telegrams overwhelmingly opposing it. He even had a sermon from his pastor uh, on how bad it was for Truman to appoint an ambassador to the Vatican. And the heat was so great that Clark withdrew his nomination and nobody dared until the administration of Ronald Reagan to talk about appointing ambassador to the Vatican again. And when Reagan appointed ambassador to the Vatican, nobody cared. Or so it seemed. A couple of things have changed. First of all, you have the cheerful, benign Pope John XXIII um, presiding over the Second Vatican Council, although he didn't live to see it finished, and referring to Protestants no longer as condemned heretics, but separated brethren. And then you have John Paul II playing a major role in the overthrow of communism in Eastern Europe. And since American Protestants kind of saw communism as the Antichrist, maybe not literally, but that kind of an attitude, this was warmly received by many American Protestants. But in the warm afterglow of Vatican II, it's no longer considered proper, no longer socially acceptable to describe the papacy as the fulfillment of a collection of prophecies regarding a powerful spiritual tyranny. However, A professor at Eastern University in Pennsylvania, a man named Dr. Philip Carey, a person who describes himself as an ecumenically-minded Lutheran, has made the statement the Reformation wouldn't have happened without the conviction that the Pope was Antichrist. And then he goes farther, suggesting you know nobody believes that anymore. But if the Pope isn't the Antichrist, he asks, what right do we have to be split? Since Protestantism owes its very existence to Luther's conviction that the Pope was the Antichrist, it might be instructive to inquire why Luther held this view and under what circumstances he reached this conclusion. 
we'll see that he came to this view slowly and reluctantly, driven by historical circumstances and theological reflection. Luther was probably unaware of previous attacks on the papacy made by people like John Huss and John Wycliffe and others when he, in 1517, drafted his 95 Theses. Moreover, his target at this time was not the papacy, but a greedy Dominican monk named Johann Tetzel, who was distorting Catholic doctrine by exaggerating the supposed benefits of indulgences. Sylvester Prierius, the papal court's chief theologian, transformed the nature of the debate from a question of policy to one of authority. He wrote, He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and Pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength is a heretic. And by the way, it wasn't until 1870 that the Church of Rome officially said that the pontiff was infallible, but Prairius, centuries before that, is making this statement. He said, whoever says the Church of Rome may not do what it's actually doing in the matter of indulgences is a heretic. Well, Luther was ordered to appear in Rome to defend himself, which would probably have been an immediate death sentence. Friends intervened and got, got a, a, an agreement where he would face his accuser in a German city, Augsburg. And there he was confronted with Cajetan's demand that he recant. Luther asked for scriptural evidence on why he should recant. He wasn't given any. He was just told, recant. Uh, he figured it wouldn't be safe for him to stay around, and so he left early. He didn't want to become another John Huss. But with Thomas Cajetan asking him to recant without giving any scriptural reasons, and with Prierius' assertion of papal infallibility, Luther began to consider the possibility that these men were the servants of Antichrist. He shared these suspicions with a few of his uh, like-minded believers privately. his suspicion that the Antichrist reigns in the court of Rome. 
In July 1519, as we mentioned last night, Luther took the position that both popes and church councils could err. Now for Luther, everything stood under the judgment of Scripture. And he was soon using Scripture to pass judgment on the Pope. Two things that Luther read the following year weakened his hesitation about openly referring to the Pope as Antichrist. One was Lorenzo Valla's treatise on the donation of Constantine. Donation of Constantine was a document that the church had used throughout the high Middle Ages to say that it had authority over kings and rulers and basically the whole earth. Uh, So much so that when the Americas were explored, they would actually park a ship off the coast and read in Latin to the Indians a document saying that the Lord had given the whole earth to Pope Alexander VI, and he had divided it among the Spanish and the Portuguese, and so therefore they should uh, listen to what the Spanish had to say because the the ruler of the earth had so declared it, to paraphrase. Uh, and, and, And Lorenzo Valla proved through his knowledge of linguistics that this document could not have been written in the time of Constantine. So, so Luther began to say that the, see that the power the church was claiming was built on fraud. The other document was a new, uh, a new edition of Praorius's attack on Luther. Uh, and in this, he revised, he, he, he repeated his idea that the Pope was infallible. And he went so far as to say the Pope had more authority than scriptures or church councils. And he quoted a passage from canon law that said, if the Pope, even if the Pope were so scandalously behave as to lead multitudes of souls to the devil, he still couldn't be removed. Shocked at this extreme statement from Rome's chief theologian, Luther wrote to a friend, I think everyone in Rome has gone crazy. Luther's treatise to the Christian nobility of the German nation concerning the reform of the Christian estate, June 13, 1520, repeatedly linked the papacy to Antichrist. Referring to Priarius's appalling statement, Luther wrote, it must have been the very prince of devils who said what is written in canon law if the Pope was so scandalously bad as to lead souls in Christ, uh, crowds to the devil, yet he could not be deposed. And then he said it's to be feared that this game This is a game of Antichrist or a sign that he's close at hand. 
Luther also attacked as works of Antichrist papal claims to have power over earthly authorities and even over angels. And in view of the fact that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, Luther bluntly said, no vicar's rule can go beyond his Lord's. In August 1520, Luther learned that Leo was sending a bull which threatened him with excommunication. With this bull, Richard Marius observes, all ambiguity about the Antichrist evaporated from Luther's mind. These views culminated in the book The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, which mentions several reasons for calling the papacy Antichrist, the claim that the Pope had the power to make laws withholding the communion cup from the laity, and the annulment of legitimate marriages. And uh, he said, unless they will abandon their laws and restore to Christ's churches their liberty, they are guilty of all the souls that perish under this captivity, and the papacy is of truth the kingdom of Babylon, yea, of the very Antichrist. Notice how he gets stronger and stronger as he's going along. In his treatise from the New Testament, he said, the Pope does not have a hair's breadth of power to change what Christ has made, and whatever of these things he changes, he does as a tyrant and an antichrist. Well, the threatening bull, Excurgi Domini, denounced 41 of Luther's published statements. It condemned anyone holding or defending these positions and warned Luther that he must return to the bosom of the church within 60 days. Luther took the bull and had a bonfire. He replied to the bull in his defense and explanation of all the articles which repeatedly depicted the Pope as Antichrist. Arguing that Christ was the rock of Matthew 16, 18, Luther wrote that interpreting this text to refer to the papacy was a lying device perverting God's word. He called the Pope Antichrist for giving people false assurance through indulgences, denying the belief that the... that that repentance was required for forgiveness of sins, spreading error around the world in exchange for monetary wealth and imposing on people the penitential system. He said in both his commands and his prohibitions, he's the direct opposite of Christ, as befits a true antichrist. Luther also responded that the papists had burned the good Christians, John Huss 
and Jerome of Prague, as well as the godly man of Florence, Hieronymo Savonarola, thus fulfilling the prophecies concerning Antichrist that he will cast Christians into the oven. Luther promised that the word of God would crush the Antichrist without violence. Yet he fully expected that he would lose his life before this happened. Before this happened, because, as he wrote to Georg Spalatin, Antichrist holds the kingdom of this world captive. Nevertheless, at Worms, he courageously refused to retract anything he had written unless convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason. Consequently, as we mentioned last night, he was declared an outlaw. The fact that he survived despite the imperial ban was due to the intervention of Frederick of Saxony, who had him in protective custody at Bortberg. The chief reason that the mature Lutheran described the Pope as Antichrist was because of Luther's opposition, uh, Luther's opinion that the Pope had usurped God's place as lawmaker, adding his own rules to those of the Bible, burdening consciences with human traditions, infringing on Christian freedom, sitting in judgment on God's word, nullifying the text assuring of forgiveness of sin, and giving people a distorted picture of God. The Pope also supplanted God's place by teaching that the scriptures derived their authority from the church rather than vice versa, and by claiming authority over not only the church, but the whole world. According to Luther, persecuting people for following God's word was another way the Pope was asserting, assuming God's authority. The false church is always a persecutor of the true church, he wrote. Central to Luther's understanding of the Pope as Antichrist, seizing God's place, was 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, 2, verses 3 and 4, noting that the villain in 2 Thessalonians 2 sits in God's temple and exalts himself above God, Luther said, the Antichrist took his seat in the church not to govern it with divine laws, but with human commandments. Luther also found predictions of Antichrist in the book of Revelation and Daniel. Interpreting Daniel 7, he wrote that the little horn arising out of the Roman Empire after its division was the papal Antichrist. He believed that Daniel 8, 11, and 12 contained blended prophecies applying to both Antichrist and Antiochus IV. Again, he also found prophecies of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, especially chapters 13 and 17. In Revelation 13, it was the lamb-like beast appearing to be Christian, yet preaching the doctrines of the dragon from hell. 
usurping Christ's role as high priest. Luther said the Pope had set, his own, set up his own clergy, claiming that he was imprinting on their souls an indelible character, when in actuality he was imprinting them with the mark of the beast. Using the symbolism of Revelation 14, 17, and 18, Luther frequently referred to Rome as Babylon and the scarlet whore of Babylon. He praised and thanked the Lord for rescuing him from the scarlet whore. The Roman Antichrist, according to Luther, in effect regard a negated Christ's sacrifice and mediation. The doctrine of merit, he said, nullified God's grace and made Christ die to no purpose. Luther said the papacy also negated Christ's sacrifice by proclaiming the mass to be a sacrifice for obtaining forgiveness of sins as if Christ's sacrifice were of no value. Luther insisted that Christ is still our only mediator and said he has not abdicated his high priestly office and he had not transferred it to the Pope. Luther suggested that the time of judgment predicted in Daniel 7 verses 8 and 9 was taking place during his lifetime. He found comfort in the prophecies that the last days would be shortened for the sake of the godly and that the church would be preserved and Antichrist would not encompass everything with error and falsehood. He noted that in the second angel's message of Revelation 14, the gospel was followed by a voice predicting that Babylon, the spiritual papacy, would be destroyed. At that time, those who cling to the papacy against the gospel shall be cast into the winepress of God's wrath. During the final year of his life, Luther described the Pope not only as Antichrist, but as the vicar of the devil. In his last and most bitter attack on the Pope against the Roman papacy and institution of the devil, Luther referred to the Pope as the most hellish father three times. He denounced him as a teacher of lies, blasphemies, and idolatries, an inciter to all kinds of bloodshed, a brothel keeper above all brothel keepers, and all vermin, and even a true werewolf. Were such attacks unchristian? Luther didn't think so. He said, we are incited to anger against the Pope, not by personal ambition, but by righteous jealousy and fervor of conscience to vindicate and protect the glory of God. He pointed out that Paul's attack on the false apostles were not slander, but judge, judging them by the apostolic by Paul's apostolic authority. And Luther said when he called the papacy Antichrist, he was judging by divine authority on the basis of Galatians 1.8. 
But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Although Luther was anti-papal, he was not anti-Catholic. As Yaroslav Pelican puts it, although the Pope was the Antichrist, seated in the temple of God, the church in which he was seated was the temple of God. By the time of William Miller, Luther's concept of the papacy as the Antichrist was widely spread throughout Protestantism. Like Luther, Miller identified the little horn arising out of the Roman Empire as the papal Antichrist. Key leaders in the Millerite movement agreed that this little horn, Babylon, and the man of sin were all symbols of the Antichrist, the papacy. In July 1843, one Millerite, Charles Fitch, broadened the definition of Babylon to include not just the papacy, but also any Protestant churches that rejected the impending premillennial advent of Jesus Christ. He urged true Christians to come out of Babylon. As more and more Millerites were expelled from the churches because of their Adventist beliefs, a chorus of Adventist preachers joined Fitch in calling for God's people to come out of the newly identified Protestant Babylon. Other Adventist thinkers refined this theological trajectory. Joseph Bates brought a new dimension to the identification of the little horn as the papal antichrist, applying the phrase, he shall think to change times and laws, Daniel 7.25, to Rome's role in the change of the Sabbath. Like Fitch, Bates gave the symbol of Babylon a broader interpretation than traditional Protestant, the traditional Protestant view. He saw it as the professed Christian churches with a form of godliness. James White, in line with Luther, argued that the papal little horn had trodden the sanctuary underfoot, Daniel 8.13, by assuming power that belongs alone to Christ. Ellen G. White agreed with Luther and Miller that the little horn of Daniel 7 was the papacy, called by Paul the man of sin. Like Fitch and Bates, she considered the Babylonian, Babylon included the papacy, but it was also much more than the papacy, using such expressions as the fallen denominational churches and the world-loving churches of the last days. She said Babylon had been fostering poisonous doctrines such as the natural immortality of the soul, the eternal torment of the wicked, and the denial of the preexistence of Christ prior to his birth in Bethlehem, and advocating and exalting the first day of the week above God's holy sanctified day. Like Luther, Ellen White was anti-papal but not anti-Catholic. She opposed Protestant apostasy, but not the people who belonged to the other Protestant churches. She declared the great body of God's people, of Christ's true followers, are still to be found in Babylon. Similar to Luther, Ellen White offered multiple interpretations of the word Antichrist. Luther 
suggested uh, there were many antichrists, but the papacy was the true final antichrist. Um, Ellen White stated the Pope is in reality the vice regent of Satan, echoes of Luther there. He is antichrist. She did not stop there, but defined Antichrist as all who exalt themselves against the will and work of God. She even declared, whoever presumes to judge the motives of others is again usurping the prerogative of the Son of God. These would-be judges and critics are placing themselves on the side of Antichrist. Ellen White also used the term to describe Satan himself, impersonating Christ and performing miracles. Quote, Antichrist will appear as the true Christ. Men will be deceived and will exalt Satan to the place of God and deify him. Later, mainstream Seventh-day Adventist expositors tended to follow in the footsteps of the early denominational pioneers with regard to interpreting the various Antichrist symbols. They echoed Ellen White's expanded definition of Babylon, some spoke specifically of more than one Antichrist, while others focused their attention on the papal power when describing the Antichrist. Nevertheless, there does seem to be a general agreement that the man of sin described in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, is equated with the little horn of Daniel 7 and refers to the papacy. Luther's position on the Antichrist is no longer politically correct. It is out of sync with the groupthink of the 21st century. As Heike Obermann says, Luther's way of speaking about the Antichrist has become alien to us. Yet the question for us should, should not be, is this position embarrassing, politically correct, or socially, socially acceptable? Rather, it should be instead, is it biblically correct? This view was not politically correct in Luther's day. It was very incorrect politically. In the same way, just as in Luther's day, the opinion could be potentially fatal for the person who adheres to this such a view, just as it was for John Huss. Unlike the situation in Luther's time, however, Today, a person holding this view, at least in the United States, is unlikely to be literally to, to be put to death for these views, but prophecy speaks of a future death decree. The Catholic Church ordered the Holy Roman Empire to execute Luther. Uh, but because of the way that the Holy Roman Empire had become decentralized, uh, Saxony was able to protect him. But, of course, they executed thousands of people for holding Lutheran views. Well, up until George, Bush, George W. Bush ran for president, Bob Jones University held that view, and the United States Congress got into the act by passing a resolution that it was wrong to denounce the Pope as Antichrist. And Jones University backed down. Well, whether or not there were wounds mentioned in prophecy that certainly have 
wounded the Catholic Church. And, and I do see in prophecy a, a, a situation that suggests that the time will come when people will be repulsed by Babylon and, and uh, show contempt upon Babylon. But yeah, uh, the deadly wound we usually interpret as what happened in 1798, and of course that fits a time prophecy as well. But yes, these are other wounds, certainly. But not deadly, yes. Yes, uh, I found in First John two eighteen, like that that verse is divided into two parts. I think an antichrist shall come, and it says even now there are many antichrists. Right. So if we were talking about the authority of uh, the Bible last time, and so I don't understand why there would seem uh, like a. Uh, at the darkness of who the Antichrist is, is the word, I understand Antichrist to be against God, who is the word of God. So obviously, you know, the, the, the church, the Roman church is against the word of God, and so will be anyone that does not obey the word of God. Okay. So my, my question was, is, what is the meaning of Antichrist? Somebody opposed to Christ, or somebody in the place of Christ. And in the case of the papacy, uh, certainly the very fact that he takes the title of the vicar of the Son of God uh, would suggest that he is in the place of Christ, taking the place of Christ. Over a century ago, Ellen White wrote that Protestants would take the lead in stretching forth their hand across the chasm and grasping the hand of Rome. And that seemed like idios, idiosity when she wrote that. You know, I mentioned the tremendous outpouring of wrath when Harry Truman dared to appoint an ambassador to the Vatican. The uh, organization now known as Americans United was officially titled Protestants and Other Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. Uh, and this is, you know, in the, in the 20th century, long after Ellen White's time. Uh, the group think in America, even when John Kennedy ran for president, certainly when Al Smith ran for president, was that there was something un-American about a man whose loyalty was to a small despotic kingdom in the middle of Italy? Okay, that's a very good question. First of all, on the Trinity, we have a lecture, actually two-part two, two lecture coming up in February, I believe it is, uh, on the issue of the Trinity. Uh, secondly, there is a world of difference between an organization setting a set of rules for its members, especially if it's done collectively, and an organization with power over the government and the, and the power of life and death 
and if you are excommunicated, you are subject to being killed. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a whole separate issue. In America, we have the separation of church and state, which means, among other things, that the church doesn't have power over the state. Uh, but it also means that churches have the right to determine their own rules of membership. Um, the issue, one of the issues that you brought up in your beautiful article in the Adventist Theological, I, I encourage all of you to read his extended article on uh, the Antichrist. The issue, and we see it today, blown up, marriage, Daniel, the desire of woman. Would you make a comment how Luther grabbed onto that as one of the many issues of the Antichrist? Oh, 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 repeat that. The, the... You brought it up in your article, uh -huh. but not this morning. Yeah, oh, yes. Luther's issue from Daniel, the desire of women, yeah. uh, was nailed as the Antichrist factor. Yes, at Luther said that if the Rome church hadn't done anything more than to forbid the marriage of priests, it was, it was Antichrist because it's, it's, it's suppressing natural human desires and producing a wealth of immorality. And, uh, you know, somebody mentioned uh, the pedophiles. And, and what do you do when you tell a normal man that he can't ever have sex ever, ever, ever? You know, a, a young man may say, okay, I will take the vow of chastity, but how long will it stick? So this is one of Luther's points. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.